0: We'll start with today and I just wanted to talk about a well-known parable. The parable of the seed and the sower. You ever find that you're reading something that you probably read a hundred times and you find something in it that you never saw before? Uh, So that happened to me with the seed and the sower uh, a few months ago. Um, So I think we'll pick it up in verse 4 and we'll read through to verse 15. And when much people were gathered together, and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A soul went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. <coughs> and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture.
1: And some fell among thorns,
0: and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Under you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now, I don't know about you, but straight away my brain goes into backflips over that one. (coughs) If you think about what he's just said, like, what's he mean? So, we'll come back to that with luck. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear Then comes the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy and these have no root which for a while believe and in time of temptation
1: fall away. And that which fell among the thorns are they
0: which when they have heard go forth and are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. One of the brothers gave a little five-minute talk uh, a couple of months back. We have a prayer meeting uh, every alternative Wednesday night where we really only have a short, pithy little thought, no meant to be more than five minutes, and we have a time of prayer. And his thought was simply that this parable is no less relevant if we've been in the Lord for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Now, I've got to confess that I suppose for a very long time I ticked the box when it come to the first section, they by the wayside, a day that when the, the devil, you know, the, the devil comes and snatches the word, the fowls of the air snatch the seed out of there. They never, in other words, they never get saved. And I've always thought, I'll pick that box, I'll, I'll escape that destiny, and then I understand the other parables. But I think he was spot on when he said, really, all all of these categories are no less relevant. And this parable, I think, is probably a parable more than any other that unlocks. All the other parables and teachings of Jesus. So when we look at the birds of the air, it's talking about the devil snatching the seed out of one's heart. So clearly, if someone's got a hard heart, doesn't want to hear the gospel, the word will never penetrate. They won't, they'll hear the gospel, but they won't understand it. They'll see, but they won't perceive. But you know what? We can be in the Lord a long time. And our life can be such that we don't want to hear the word anymore. And I don't necessarily mean that we don't want to hear the Bible, we don't want to come to meetings, we don't want to hear talk, but when it's direct, upfront and personal and someone's got to say something to us, and it might be our closest friend, it might be our husband, our wife, it could be our children, it could be anyone, basically maybe correcting us a little bit, suggesting that attitude's not good and we don't want to hear it. I would suggest that that's, that's covered by this passage of the parable. You see, whenever our heart becomes hard, seed can't germinate. Now, when we receive the engrafted word of God, the seed of God, into our heart, it germinated, but the seed keeps producing. But if we don't allow that seed to keep penetrating our heart, like I said last week, those corners of our heart that probably if we could, we'd keep secret. But the word won't allow that to happen because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So there's a moral there for us against hardness. Apart, Take the situation where the seed falls upon the rock and essentially it finds no depth of root. There's no, there's no moisture there. There's no depth there. Well that absolutely can apply to us at any time in our walk in the Lord. It's not just people that have been in the Lord for a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year and then they finally get some tribulation and then they faint. It could be As I said, maybe we've been in the Lord all our life. 20, 30, whatever, 50 years. What's happening here? Jesus said one time when he addressed, I think, the Pharisees, he said, you're like people and you're saying to me, we have piped but you have not danced. In other words, Jesus wasn't fulfilling their expectations. And that happens to human beings at any time when God apparently doesn't meet our expectations. When does that happen? Anytime. When there's disappointment, we can respond with the thought, God's not meeting my expectations. God's not answering my prayers. When there's trials. See, one of the things about trials is, for those of us that are sharp-minded, uh-huh, to try and find a shortcut around the trial. I was down at Accra a few years ago and I sort of got to the top of the summit and I thought, I think I'll take a shortcut back. Well, I seriously thought I won't get back till after dark. I was in the midst of gauze bush and prickles and briars and thinking, what have I done? You can't short circuit trials, because if a trial comes, God doesn't, God doesn't try us. God doesn't tempt us. It says that in the book of James. But trials come because our character continually needs purifying and refining. So trials come. And trials are an opportunity for us to learn something. We'll come back to that a bit later on. So when God doesn't meet our expectations, you know, James talks about the trial of our faith. You can't beat the trial of your faith by cutting through a shortcut. There are no shortcuts uh, to trials and tribulations, which is not to say that God doesn't work his miraculous healing power in our life. It's not to say that he doesn't provide in our life. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about trial, which is essentially of our character. This character takes time to develop. Now we talk about the thorns, and Jesus said that there could be worries but equally it could be wealth and abundance who was it that said I know how to be abased and I know how to abound in other words I can cope with whatever life is throwing at me at the time I'm I'm moderate in all things I keep my perspective I stay grounded I don't get ahead of myself if things are going particularly well financially I don't get down in the dumps if I'm going through tough times We found out years, years after the event that when we were young and we had two and then three children, like many of us, we were apparently living below the poverty line. Well, somebody forgot to tell us because we had people over most weeks. Admittedly, it was humble fare, spag bowl. I taught Annie how to make toast. I taught her how to make a cup of tea. And she taught me how to make holy water. Just put it on the stove and burn hell out of it. We're having fun. We're enjoying each other's company. And we're all in the same boat together. But thorns are an interesting thing, you know. There is no suggestion in this parable that the seed that fall amongst the thorn has fallen into soil that's somehow intrinsically different to any of the other soils. It's the same soil. And I would put it to you that all soil has thorns. Nobody gets an exemption from thorns. But we see the last word at the end of this whole parable is, or near the end, is a word called patient. That's the last word actually. So we'll introduce that right now. We patiently deal with the thorns of life. Temptations, worries, pleasures. Anything that can choke the seed of God's word. Anything that can stop the seed Doing its work. Now it's interesting, this parable can sometimes be read as a parable that paints a predetermined position for four types of human beings. It's not that at all. This parable is about one thing and one thing only, our response to the Word of God. That's what it's about. Even when we get the intractable or difficult or unusual verse 10, which we will get to shortly, it's still about our response to the word of God, our response to the seed of God's word. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Sow not among thorns. Break up your fallow ground. Break up your unplowed ground. Break up your hard ground. What's my hard ground? What's my unplowed ground? Is it some talent that I haven't used? You might argue that it is, but I would suggest it's my heart every time. It's my heart. It's my heart, my attitude, the intentions of my heart that determines whether I allow that seed of God's word to crack open the bits that need cracking open and let in the light and let my character continue to develop in patience. In the book of Judges in chapter 9, don't turn there, but there's a rather remarkable story. There's a um, a situation upon the death of Gideon And Gideon had 70 sons. And the children of Israel wanted one of the sons to be a king. They wanted Gideon to be a king. And Gideon said, well, I'm not going to be a king. I'm not a king. I'm a judge. I'm a leader. But I'm not a king. We don't have kings. And then they said to the sons, well, we want a king. And the sons said, well, they weren't interested in being kings. But one of them was. And he was a half-brother to most of them. His name was Abimelech. And so he got all all his brothers together, all 70 of them, And it was a remarkable moment of what we call fratricide. He murdered 70 brothers in one fell hit. But he missed the youngest, a young fellow called Jotham. And Jotham stood off at a bit of a distance, put a bit of space, I suppose, from a javelin's throw between him and Abimelech. And he called out to the men of Israel and he told them a parable. And in the parable he said that the trees sought Another plant to rule over them. And they approached the olive, they approached the fig, and they approached the vine, and they said, rule over us. And the olive said, I'm not going to rule over you. I'm an olive tree. My, I bring forth olives, which are good for men. The fig tree said, I'm not going to rule over you. My job is to bring forth figs. I, I, I give food to men. The vine said, I'm not going to rule over you. I bring forth the grape, which, you know, is good for man and brings pleasure to man and God, I think it says somewhere in Scripture. Anyway, all three said, all three of these fruitful plants said, we're not going to rule over you. And then it says that the thorn or the briar said, I'll rule over you. And Israel said, right you can be our king. And Jotham, Jotham then pronounced a curse upon both Israel and Abimelech, the briar. But the moral of the story is if we don't allow the fig, the olive, the grape to do their job in our own life to bring forth the good fruit that we get through, the Word of God, the seed of God's Word, the Holy Spirit, if we don't actively nurture them into their right position in our thinking, in our mind, in our priorities, then there is no alternative. It is an unstoppable fact that the thorns will simply fill the void. If we don't allow the fig, the olive, the grape to rule, the thorns will rule in our heart. And we might not recognize them as thorns in the early months and years because sometimes. It's the pleasures of life which can seem quite harmless. There are pleasures of life which are quite vice-filled and harmful. But there are other pleasures of life that are not necessarily of themselves harmful. But the problem is when they replace our desire for the kingdom of heaven, they become harmful to us. Now I'm going to get to verse 10. So I'll read it again. Under you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now this is drawn directly from Isaiah chapter 6 and he's saying that seeing they might not perceive, hearing they might not comprehend. And again there are those that would suggest that this scripture is a scripture that says see. God closes some people's hearts and minds and eyes and he opens others. But I'm going to be contrary to that. I don't see it that way. And I know it says in Romans that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But I would argue that even Pharaoh had opportunity to humble himself. And what is saying here? Now, I'm going to, t- I've tried this metaphor three times or two times back home and it goes flat. But I reckon it'll be a winner here. We've all seen Lord of the
1: Rings. Has anyone seen Lord of the Rings?
0: This is Lord of the Rings country. Remember the final scene? And they're standing before what? The gates of Mordor. Big, dark, impenetrable there is no way through the gates of Mordor. you with me on this? Please, someone. <laughs> and if we think that we can assail the gates to the kingdom of heaven through our intellect, through our good works, through our righteousness, they will remain closed and they might as well be the gates of Mordor because they are impassable. And what Jesus is saying here is to these people around you, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, these others that want to... Because he said somewhere in Scripture, the king, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and violent men take it by force. And I myself have used that to encourage people to seek for the Holy Spirit and get the bit stirred up. And I'm not going to debunk that thought. It's an appreciation, but there's another appreciation on that verse because he's being very specific. He's saying from the days of John the Baptist until now. Well, it's not as if we needed to be energetic in seeking the Lord just from the days of John the Baptist to the days of Jesus because we're talking a very narrow period. What I think he's saying is that from the days of John the Baptist when the kingdom of heaven was first revealed because John was the greatest of all the prophets, Probably because of one thing alone, John was the only one who put his finger on the Messiah and he said, this is him. He touched him and he said, this is him. That made him the greatest of all the prophets because all the others spoke of him from a distant time. But not John. He touched him. And he opened up and he preached the kingdom of heaven and from the moment he began preaching the kingdom of heaven, Herod was angry, Herod was furious, the leaders were angry, they tried to kill Jesus on day one, they chopped off John's head. Violent men were trying to resist the kingdom of God because they had their own way into the kingdom and what Jesus is saying to his humble disciples, you understand what I'm saying, it's given to you and what he doesn't say but it's kind of between the lines because... You allow the seed to penetrate your heart. And I know that at times it penetrates and opens you up to the truth about yourself as well as the truth about my father and my kingdom and my eternal life that I will give you. But for them with a hard heart, it might as well be the gates of Mordor. There is no getting past these gates. Nothing can take you into the kingdom of heaven. But the miracle of it all is that these gates, the gates to the kingdom of heaven, will freely open themselves up to any humbly inquiring mind. They just open. And instead of having the dark Lord on the inside, you've got the God of creation and a kingdom and a realm of light. And this is where the metaphor fails. But anyway, it's good for the moment.
1: So whether we're confronted by judgment or blessing
0: is determined by our response. Don't turn there, but in Isaiah 57 and in Isaiah 59 there are two whole chapters dedicated to the degraded backslidden state of Israel. Absolutely gone for all money. There was no justice. The the courts were corrupt. Everything was corrupt. And yet, in chapter 61, just two chapters further on, right at near the very end in verse 11, might actually turn there, Isaiah 61. Because Pastor Mark says, I get a dollar of a scripture. Uh, verse 11, yes, the last verse of Isaiah 61. So, in the midst of a picture that's been painted, of a hopeless and helpless people who are so thoroughly degraded themselves that there is no hope. And yet here, right here, for as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So in the midst of this really dark scene that you'll have to take my word on is being painted, There's this verse here that's saying, you know what? My seed is going to overcome all of this. There's another particular verse in Isaiah that says, like an oak tree whose trunk remains alive after its leaves fall off, the holy seed will be its trunk. Moral of that story is never give up on the potential for salvation. So never give up on the potential for someone's salvation. We all know people that have seemed a bit hard-headed, hard-hearted, closed books. Some of them will go to their graves like that. Some of them, however, are simply resisting what they don't know is the inevitable breaking open of their heart by the seed of God's word. We've got to trust. You and I trust the power of the seed. We plant the seed, we sow the seed and trust the seed. It's not about you. It's not about me. In the Christian world today, Christian faith has become all about me. That's how it's sold. What's in it for me? The prosperity gospel, what's in it for me? My own personal view is it's got nothing to do with me and it's got nothing to do with you. Which is not to say that God's compassion and tender loving care doesn't come to you and come to me individually, it does. But it's not fundamentally about us. It's fundamentally about the Son of God. It's fundamentally about light exploding to the point where there is no more darkness. It's fundamentally about a movement through history. And we've been swept up in that movement. And what Pastor Mark was describing in his testimony about people going out witnessing on, I know there was a great revival on and there was. It was a season. There was a movement on and that movement is cyclical and that movement will come back to these shores without a shadow of a doubt. It's not as if the revival of the 80s was the first revival. I think I've mentioned that back in 1900 at Freshwater Creek when we lived in Cairns, there was a photograph in a book of the Pentecostal story in Australia. I don't know much about the story, but I know that there's a photograph of 100 people getting baptised at Freshwater Creek. Well, back in 1980, we were baptising fellas in Freshwater Creek during flood. In fact, Pastor John nearly lost one of them one time because we pushed him a little bit too far out into the stream. Whoop, grab him. So what was going on in 1900? I don't know, but I know that 100 people got baptised by a Pentecostal preacher. And decades later, it's, it's on again. And if we went back a bit further, it would have been happening, you know, maybe not at Freshwater Creek, but, but it's, it comes. You can't have perpetual harvest. You gotta have a time when someone's sowing the seed. And sowing the seed can be just tedious if we forget the power of the seed. But if we've got in our mind's eye the power of the seed, it'll never get tedious. It'd actually be fun. Because even though all the outward signs says we're small, The world's not listening. We've got this inner knowledge that ultimately the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth because it's the power of the seed. And all we've got to do is concentrate on letting that seed do in our heart what Jesus is saying it should do in the parable of the seed and the sower. Let it do its work. I better keep moving. Verse 15. I want to get down there. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. All of the kingdom parables speak about time, process and patience. Some things can't be rushed. Salvation can't be rushed. I received the Holy Ghost in 1977. Now I know I was saved in 1977 but at the end of the day in my reckoning I'm not saved yet. I don't count myself to have apprehended but I seek and I push forward to apprehend that thing for which the Lord has set me up for. So you get the drift? I know, if, you know, if we drop dead today, I've got the confidence that the grace of God is such that because I carry within my body the Spirit of Jesus Christ, then that is resurrection power. Amen? Unquestionable. But I don't tick the box and count myself right, move on to some other experience. I must admit, before I come to the Lord, the day before I come to the Lord, I actually thought, I'll do this thing, I'll tick the box and move on say, yeah, been there, done that. I had no idea it was going to change my destination. Jesus said in Luke 21, in your patience, possess ye your souls. We haven't got time, but that was speaking directly, Luke 21, to the times of Jerusalem's great trial in 70 AD. a A terrible time. But he also lines that up to speak to the people of the last days, the end times which have been unusually generous to the Western world in the last 70 years, but the aberration is coming to a close and we're returning to normal programming soon. And Jesus says, In your patience possess you your souls. In your patience you stand firm under pressure. Patience. What is patience? Is it a state where we're continually in prayer? Praying, 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 praying?
1: Provision? Healing? Revival?
0: I I think it's less about prayer. I think patience is more about our response. The way we respond to the tribulation, to the trial, to the moment, to the opportunity Patience, I believe, is about our response as much or more, actually, than it is about prayer. We pray, but we pray so that we can act. It's like Moses standing before the Red Sea. What will I do?
1: God said, what do you mean, what do you do?
0: What will I do? And God's scratching his head going, mate, have I brought you so far? What will I do? Just stretch forth your right. In other words, just do something. Just do something, Moses. Use your authority. Do something. You'll never get into trouble with the Lord for doing something when you're acting and stepping out by faith. You might, you might get it wrong. That's fine. The Lord will work with that. He'll love that because you had a go. You'll never come unglued for having a go in the Lord. In your patience, you'll stand firm under pressure. In James chapter 1 verse 4, we read, Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire. What does that mean?
1: That you may be perfect. That you may become a human being with sinless perfection? No, we all know that.
0: It means that we might be mature, that might we'll be grounded, we'll be well-rounded, we'll be balanced, we'll be sustained by the word of God and in being sustained we will be sustaining to those around us. The bowels of the brethren, wrote Paul, or somebody to follow mine, are refreshed in thee, brother. That you might be perfect in entire means you might be well-rounded, productive, fruitful, beneficial. That you might be like the olive, the fig, or the vine. And the reason the thorns don't dominate our lives is because we just don't give them room. We're not so savvy that we can beat thorns. We just don't give them room. That's how we beat them. In Isaiah 26 it says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. In Philippians 4 verse 7 we read, And the peace of God which passes comprehension, keep your hearts and minds. And he goes on to say, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, Just. Lovely. Now, I really like this verse of good report. These are the things that I want to bring into my home. These are the things that I want on my desk where I do my reading. These are the things when I click that mouse and my computer screen comes to life. Apart from work, if there's anything else that's going to come up there, I want it to be these things. These are the things that I want to come through my my eyes because my eyes is one one way into my brain. These are the things I want through my ears. And when you really think about it, there's a terrible lot of stuff out there that's not pure, not lovely, not of good report, it's not cheerful, it's not edifying, it's not necessarily wicked or sinful, it's just what we call bad news. And there's a feeding frenzy going on in society on bad news. But we get the choice to choose, is that what we want? Do we want to feed on that? And I would suggest that we don't have to be like ostriches with our head in the sand and ignorant of what's going on in the world. But you don't have to feed on most stuff that's out there. Make some choices. Filter. The best things a Christian can buy for Christmas is a big fat set of earmuffs. And block out the rubbish, the white noise. Block it out. And let the seed be the thing that's making the difference today. I'll finish with one little verse. It's in Isaiah 30 somewhere. So you'll have to go look for it if you're interested. But I love it. It simply
1: says this. He will give you rain for the seed
0: you use to sow your land. He will give you rain for the seed that you use, that we use to sow our land. Amen? Amen.